0: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, your home for fly fishing in the backcountry. This is episode 66 with Hank Shaw on the art of preparing fish. Um, I would love to just get uh, a brief history on how you got started in the outdoors. Um, And then I'll probably follow that up with how you got into the culinary side of the outdoors. I'd love to hear that history.
2: Well, I mean, I didn't really get started in the outdoors. I mean, in the sense that like, it's just something I've always done. Um, Being out of a house and doing things out of a house is something that I've been doing since I, before I could walk. So um, my mom is, my mom's uncle was a, Uh, a fairly well-known naturalist in the thirties and forties in new England. And, and he taught her about the importance of kind of knowing the names of plants and animals and things. And mom just translated that to her kids. And so um, gathering wild plants and, and fishing and clamming and, and doing that sort of thing has been part of our family's DNA forever. And, hunting came much later. So, I mean, I went basically 30 years of my life um, without hunting at all. And, and then I, when I was living in Minnesota, I was a newspaper reporter and one of my colleagues, a guy named Chris Niskanen, he was the outdoor writer for the paper and I was an investigative reporter. And so we had, uh, we had fished together for quite some time. And then what had happened was it was, you know, got to be fall and it was hunting season and he asked me to come along and I'd kind of been thinking about it for a little while. And it was interesting to come out there and, and see what he saw uh, in a landscape as a hunter, because I, I very quickly realized it's very similar to what I will see if I'm either a guide or a captain or out by myself on a boat where it's, you know, and you know, an angler is not just a, Person with a with a broad and reel in his hand, but um, but there's reading tides and reading reading seasons and structure and all that sort of thing. There's a lot to it to, you know, put your bait in the right spot. And hunting is the very same way in the sense that I saw in him the ability to like, we're gonna walk this field. Well, why is this field? Like, well, because there's gonna be birds in it. Well, how do you know? And so I was just—it it, was—it lit a fire underneath me. So um, as I—I I dedicated my my uh, book, Pheasant Quail Cottontail, to Chris because uh, he created a monster with that pheasant hunt. And you know, I've been—you know, I've been—I try to get outdoors as much as possible, but I actually am am faced periodically with the uh, dilemma of our own success because there's only two of us—it's me and Holly. And we can only eat so much. Right. <laughs> so I feel pretty terrible uh, about going out there and killing things when I have things in the freezer still. So um, we've had a really good 2019 and 2020. So that we walked into this hunting season with a, not a full freezer, but a, not an empty one. And so I've been hunting a lot less this season and and doing a lot more cooking.
1: Yeah, I hear that come up sometimes in the like trophy hunting, quote unquote world. Um, I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean being a little bit more selective about the type of animals you want to shoot. And um, I'm almost always in the position of I, I don't care what I'm shooting. Uh, I'm shooting the first legal animal because I don't have a full freezer, but I can see myself maybe getting a little more selective someday if I actually have a full freezer and being able to say, okay, I mean, if I go out and and don't shoot anything, that's not the end of the world. Because I, you know, if I got one, I'd probably be giving it to friends anyway. Um, I just so happen to very rarely be in that situation.
2: That will change very quickly. Um, I thought that it was going to be difficult. I mean, I'll put it, I'll preface this by saying I have not bought meat or fish but a handful of times since 2005. So it is, it it is incredibly easy to fill a freezer with game and fish if you're any good at it. And, and, and uh, also the other piece to that is um, if you are interested in, in pursuing a a variety of things. So I, 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 when I started, I thought like, okay, this is like 2004. I'm like, I'm going to need this many pounds of venison, this many pounds of wild pig and some ducks and dah, 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 dah. And I like did it to like the, this is about how many I'm going to need to hunt. Uh-huh. And very quickly within a year or so, I just blew right through that because it just, it wasn't that hard. I mean, it, it, where I live, it's not that hard to kill a pig. It's not that hard to kill uh 10 deer or I mean, 10, 10 ducks or 20 ducks or 30 ducks in a year. Um, it is a little hard to kill a deer, but you can just drive somewhat to some other state and kill a deer like, you know, one day. Um, especially if you don't care what's on top of the deer's head. Um, so, and then Holly hunts. So what we end up getting is, uh, is a, <laughs> we'll go through the middle of the season and be like, stop <laughs> <laughs> only canvasbacks, pintails and mallards and speckle belly geese. That's it. Don't well, you're out of, <laughs> well, no, there's, there's so high quality that you always want. Oh, okay. Those, I but, see. But So yeah, like I've been doing a lot of cooking and, and, and yeah, I've been giving quite a bit of, of game and fish to, to friends and people who need it.
1: Now, uh, I know you mentioned you didn't get into hunting until much later and you started like clamming and things like that. Were you also fishing as a kid along with that clamming or did that kind of come in between, uh,
2: no, I mean, there's pictures of me as a, as a toddler with flounder and bluefish and stuff like that. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Now were you uh hunting curious like were you hoping to pick that up and just didn't have like a a mentor or a way in or was it something that uh you just didn't kind of feel the need to until you got later in life and maybe met somebody who did it or like how did you had that spark light in you
2: It's hard to say cuz it's been 20 years um but you know I would say that it was it's like um I was sort of interested in it because I was living in Minnesota and I went to the University of Wisconsin. So both of those states are big in hunting. So I didn't know another hunter at all until I was 19. Like there was not a single hunter in my world until I was 19.
1: So it just hadn't really come up.
2: No, it just, it wasn't a thing. Yeah. Like I I didn't, I wasn't a pro hunter or anti-hunter. It was just never entered my mind, uh, And until I went to Wisconsin for graduate school. And then later I was in, in, and then even when I was in Virginia, like I knew people hunted in Virginia, I was there for a job, but you know, it's not like, eh, I don't need, I don't need to hunt, you know, I I can fish all day. And it wasn't until I went to Minnesota where like, yeah, maybe I'll give it a go. And it wasn't like, I didn't have a burning need to do it. But what I ended up finding out is that a, uh, I'm pretty good at it. B, I really enjoy being out there and, and pursuing your own food. And, and I'd always had been with fish and adding hunting to that mix felt like the third leg of a stool.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of think of foraging in that way for a lot of people, like a lot of people pick up hunting and fishing and the, that last leg is going out and gathering foods. Cause that, mm-hmm. you know, arguably could be the easiest one. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing trying to escape you on the other side. But at the same time, it also almost feels more daunting because you can eat almost anything you can kill. But in the plant world, it's not as easy as just you find a plant and eat it. And so I think that right. one actually trips people up a lot more than you'd think.
2: People don't want to do homework. Like it's it's simple. It's as simple as that. I mean, it's not rocket science to, to learn plants and mushrooms. Uh, but it's, yeah, you got to have to, you have to care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to care about, you know, reading books like mine or other people's are like this is what you do this is what you look for and this is these are the things that if you see this don't eat it right <laughs> and you know again it's um it's not a hell of a lot different from remembering the stats of your favorite football player but you just have to choose to want
1: to care yeah just choosing your passion at that point and and mm-hmm. devoting time to it now, I have to ask, do you uh, do any catch-and-release fishing, or is fishing very much a means to procure food? Because you can't really do much catch-and-release hunting. You know, you might like hunting, but if you've got a full freezer, that's it. You might you might have to stop. But fishing, you could keep fishing even if you've got a full freezer. So do you ever choose to go out just for fun, or is it is it solely a means to get food for you?
2: I typically practice fillet and release. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, yeah, I mean, I... Um... I have intentionally gone on a catch and release fishing trip exactly once. Uh, and that was to God's river in Manitoba where the world's most giant brook trout live. And I kind of wanted to catch a giant brook trout. And I did. I, it was a seven and a half pound brook trout, which wow. is a freaking <laughs> mega brook trout. Um, and, and I'm glad I did. And I understand why that fisheries catch and release. However, one of the caught and released brook trout certainly died. I should have been able to keep that fish,
1: oh, um, like you you legally weren't allowed to, but it took the hook deep or something like that. yes, exactly okay. that.
2: um, so like, okay, I still killed a fish, and didn't get to eat it so yay, um but yeah, i don't I don't catch and release for fun i just I just don't um fish, and in fact, on uh, my own podcast um. Hunt, gather, talk, we're available, wherever podcasts are. <laughs> <laughs> so my own podcast this season is all about fish and seafood. And I'm, I'm. in fact, tomorrow I'm going to be interviewing uh, one of the world's most foremost authorities on fish intelligence. And fish are a lot smarter than we think they are. And fish are a lot more sentient than we think they are. So sure, I'll kill them because I want to eat them. But that's just it's kind of like law of the law of the jungle, I guess. But I'm not going to... I'm not going to go out there and, and torture fish for no apparent reason.
1: Yeah. I, that's something that I've um, thought about a lot myself. Cause I, I do a decent bit of catch and release. I also have no problem keeping fish. Um, but I won't stop fishing when I've, when I've got enough to eat, like I'll, I'll keep going out. Um, but it's something I've kind of wrestled with before the idea of it's just kind of messing with an animal for the fun of it. Um, mm-hmm. which I would normally, you know, if, if someone said they were just going out and harassing wildlife, I would say that's cruel. And then it's like, I do the same thing every weekend. Um, and I've never really been able to reconcile it apart from it's something I love to do. And you know, Yeah, like he's fishing. like, I'm <laughs> going to go
2: down a busy street. I'm going to punch people in the mouth for no reason.
1: Right. <laughs> it doesn't sound good. And it's something that I've never really heard a great argument for apart from, you know, if people like fishing. Then we've got more people to, you know, defend the fishing resources. Uh, at the same time, I wonder how much of that argument is actually valid and how much of it's just people trying to make themselves feel better. Uh so, it's a
2: little both. I mean, like that God's lake, God's river fishery, um that's a special fishery uh, and but on the other hand, you have fishing mortality no matter what you do, right, no matter what. you know, I don't care how good you are. it's gonna be somewhere around five percent if you're if, if if you're perfect. and you can get up to like fifty or sixty percent if you're let's say you're you're catching and releasing trout uh, on a hot day, for example. The mortality rate is unbelievable in that case. So I mean, it is dependent, you know. And then there's certain fish like catfish. Like catfish are super; they're like the big Lebowski of fish. Like <laughs> They're so chill that you and I mean, unless they got hooked them I and mean, there's blood coming out of there, even then they'll probably heal because fish blood coagulates faster than any other animal's blood. Um, you know, it's hard to kill a catfish, whereas other fish like a like a shad, for example, are incredibly nervous. So they're like, and they die. And so there's a catch and release fishery for them, but I don't know how effective it is.
1: Yeah. It makes you wonder, um, I mean, I don't know how this could be done practically, but in those areas that are catch and release only, but you, you know, you hooked a fish that you knew was not going to make it. It would be nice if there were some way to allow that, you know, say like, if the fish is not going to survive, you are allowed to keep it. But then you'd have people out there, oops, I snagged it. It's not going to live, and they're out there deliberately trying to get around that catch and release rule. So, exactly. I don't. Yeah, I don't know if that's if that's feasible. But I I've been in the same boat as you, where I'm in a place that I'm um, either trying to release the fish because they're a special fish, or or it's legally required. And you you see them, and you're just like, you know, what, I fought you too long because you know something maybe got wrapped around a log or whatever. And you're just like, this this is a good contender for a fish to keep, and I just can't do it. But I feel like I'm doing the wrong thing here by putting this fish back.
2: Right. I mean, this it also happens in, in regular fishing too, in the sense that, um, a great example, it wasn't this, was, I was not involved in this, but, uh, a friend of mine named RJ Waldron is a fishing guide and he had a client in the Delta here in California, uh, hook a, something on the order of a 50 pound striper. Now, I don't know if you know about striped bass or not, but I don't care where you are. 50 pound striped bass is gigantic, gigantic. Like I've never caught one. And I fished where they're from in New England and, and I've caught 40 pounders, but a 50 pound striped bass is a monster, incredibly old, big breeding female. Well, it's so rare that the gear that this client had wasn't set up for it. You know, the biggest that we'll ever normally see is like 15 pounds. So he fought this thing and fought it and fought it and fought it and fought it and brought it to the boat. Cause I mean, for a while he didn't know what the hell it was, uh, brought it to the boat and the thing was so exhausted that no matter what they did they couldn't revive it and it died and that was that was a big huge breeding female that really the fishery needed mm-hmm. and it's sort of like casualty of war kind of thing
1: yeah you can't control what takes your line at the end of the day you can you can try to set up for certain fish but you know mm-hmm. at the end of the day you're it's up to the fish to decide if it wants to take what you're throwing so exactly and this uh some of this actually comes back to like you said, educating yourself. I've seen this argument online where, you know, somebody, somebody new to the sport is doing something kind of egregious. And while I do understand that there's, you know, if you're new to something, you probably shouldn't be completely torn apart online for making a mistake. Um, but like you said earlier, part of it's uh, taking the time to educate yourself. Um, and it does surprise me sometimes when people will pick up fishing and don't bother to you know, find out that they shouldn't be fishing when the water's 80 degrees. You know, it's just not a good thing to do. And I know that, you know, some people just haven't found that out and it's not it's not an act of malice or anything like that. But um, I do feel like as more people pick up the sport, there needs to be um, kind of an emphasis on doing your homework a little bit and finding out, hey, it's not considered that ethical to fish for trout on a really hot day if you're not planning to go home with them. Right. Um, I don't really know where that line's drawn of, you know, encouraging people to educate themselves or... Uh, expecting people to educate themselves. But I do feel like in in everything, you know, when I start something new, I, I'm all over the internet scouring resources, trying to learn more about it. And I'm sometimes surprised when other people don't uh, automatically do that when they take up fishing for the first time.
2: I mean, we're hunting. Like. <laughs> yeah, we're hunting for sure. <laughs> one of the biggest things is, is with, I'm a big waterfowler, right? So not, step one, duck or not duck. <laughs>
1: right. I got
2: okay. here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at these amazing ducks. Uh, they're cormorants. Um, I got a snow goose. Nope. That was a swan. And you know, that's st- step one, duck or not duck. And that's important because you can, you know, you can lose your license if you, if you screw that up.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, uh, when you said duck or not duck, I thought I was thinking that would be a good title for one of your books because uh, it sounds along the, yeah. the, on the long <laughs> along the lines of it. But um, I actually have your book Hook, Line, and Supper here, which is kind of why why I wanted to have you on. Um, I've I've had fish cookbooks in the past, and I've had other books that touch on fish, but I feel like overall fish are kind of overlooked in the. Um, cooking world, and especially the wild game world. like People love to talk about how to cook a deer a million different ways, but um, fish are often like, all right, bake it, and it's done. Uh, so I've, I've been enjoying looking through at some of the recipes and that you've gotten here. Uh, so I, I kind of just had some some cooking questions for you, as well as, um, I, I know you talk about buying fish as well as catching your own. So also just kind of some fish handling practices that I think everyone would benefit from. Um, so maybe we can start there, since that's kind of where anyone's uh, fish culinary journey would begin is pulling a fish out of the water. Uh, is, it, is there a standard way, um, and I'm gonna focus mostly on freshwater fish because um, most of, I think my listeners are freshwater anglers. Uh, is there a standard way to um, really keep your fish as good as possible for the kitchen when you pull it out of the water? Um, or does it depend on species uh, and maybe conditions of the day? Like, are, how would you go about figuring out the best way to get your fish from the water to the kitchen?
2: My standard practice, no matter where I am, is whether I'm on shore or on a boat, uh, is I've got a five-gallon bucket. Which, if I don't have any fish, I can sit on it. Um, once you have a fish, fish, you catch the fish, you decide that you're going to keep the fish. You either stick your finger in, or take your knife and pop both gills, and put that fish headfirst into a five-gallon bucket full of water whether it's salt water or fresh, doesn't matter. Um, obviously it matters for salt water for, you know, the water you're fishing in <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, and that fish will bleed out. And so that you, that takes boom, boom, you're done. And you, you know, you can even do it in a, in the middle of a flurry where, cause you know how it is. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, the fish are here. And then up, oh, we've got an hour. We're not catching fish. So you, you know, fish comes over the rail, pop up into the five gallon bucket and all right, you've got a moment to breathe, um, and here's where it kind of depends on the fish. So, a typical freshwater fish, uh, I'm going to just sit in a cooler um, in ice water, not on ice in ice water, and I'm going to put him in flat. You know, in other words, I'm not I'm not going to let him twist or curl up. Mm-hmm. So he bleeds out, and and so when he's he you know dead and limp, uh, he goes into the ice slurry. And this is especially true in hot weather. Um, so that's pretty much standard. And if it is a trout and I've got time, uh, and I'm not kiting it because if you kite a fish, you, you, you leave the belly intact. Um, I'm gonna actually gut the fish on in in the field.
1: Do you not gut the other fish?
2: Because I'm a dirty, because uh, I'm a dirty bay fisherman, I will use the guts to catch another fish.
1: <laughs> I see. So why why are you not gutting uh, your other fish? Is there a downside to gutting it in the field? Uh,
2: it's just a pain in the ass. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean the the and and whitefish like the standard whitefish that we catch in fresh water, they're much more mellow um, enzymatically than the. Um, than fish like bluefish or tuna or trout or um tarpon or jacks uh, you know, there's a certain set of fish that are way more energetic and uh oilier and um have an in, have a have a digestive system that's way more uh, ferocious like a, a great example is you don't really catch these fish but but um anchovies and sardines their gut system works so hot and so fast, they, it will burn out their own bellies if you don't get them on ice immediately. And even then, they still will. So you've got to clean those fish super rapid.
1: So there's not a downside to gutting your fish. It's just not absolutely necessary for a lot of the fish that people might be catching on a regular basis out of fresh water. 100%. Yep. I see. Yep. So are, are you also not... Um, like When I catch a fish, maybe it's just the um, the part of me that's making up for the fact that I play with fish for fun uh i like to kill them right away like i like to give them a bonk on the head you it sounds like you bleed them out uh like you cut the gills while they're still alive and let them bleed out or do you give them a bonk on the head before you do that
2: i only uh we call that the wood shampoo and uh (laughs) (laughs) we only give them the wood shampoo if it's a big fish that's gonna jump all over the boat okay um but normally like i mean we're talking fresh water i mean how many fish do you need that for maybe a big cat um there are a few fish that you would need to, to pacify uh, before you put it in, uh, before you bleed it, but not that many. I mean, it's, but yeah, I mean, we bonk lots and lots and lots of fish uh, on the boat in, in salt water, but it, it, keep in mind that, that hitting it on the head doesn't necessarily kill it as much as stun it. I mean, it depends on how hard you hit it, but um, either way it's, it's hard. is going to continue to beat whether it's dead or not. For a good few minutes afterwards, and that will get that blood out of the uh, out of the fish.
1: So that's another one that like you could do if you want to, but you just don't find it necessary.
2: I, not with like the little freshwater. I'm, remember, I'm used to like oh here we caught a fish; it's 25 pounds. Right. I um, guess
1: maybe I'm I'm coming at it from the point of view of most of the fish I catch that I'm keeping are under 20 inches. And right. Maybe so a, like pop those gills, throw
2: it in the in the bucket, and you're have done with it.
1: Okay. Now, why uh, an ice slurry instead of straight on ice? Oh,
2: because uh it cools that fish down way faster,
1: yep, okay, that makes total sense. I can mm-hmm. see that um, and I assume if if you didn't for some reason have an ice slurry, it would be better to bury it in the ice than to just set it on top for the same reason.
2: yes, but if you don't have the ability to do an ice slurry, that means you're not actually fishing because you fish in water,
1: so you would take uh water from <laughs> you'd take water from the the river lake and put it in the cooler. you wouldn't uh necessarily use like clean water, like filtered water or anything from home. Nah. Okay. Nah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes well, sense. It makes sense. I just, I guess when I usually have an ice slurry, it's because I've bought ice and some of it has melted. So I'm used to thinking of that water as being like cleaner than uh, what I'm pulling the fish from, but it makes sense that the fish could handle the water it's coming out of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, that, and any difference between any of the species? I know you mentioned trout, but it sounds like you treat them all pretty much the same way.
2: I mean, in terms of, you know, Field care yeah. when you're on the boat? I mean, freshwater fish are very, they're very different. This is, I mean, I, I, I'm i also a little biased because I grew up in the ocean. So the diversity of forms, structures, tastes, flavors, and oil content is so dramatically different in salt than it is from fresh that a lot of my rules mostly pertain to, to salt water because of that diversity. Freshwater fish, 95% of the fish are lean white fish. Uh, and really your only questions are, are they bony or not? And, you know, your exceptions are very few I mean, trout. Trout are one of the very few fatty fish that live in fresh water. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think of a, uh, And even the ones that aren't trout are still trout,
1: you know, like, like salmon and what about, yeah. <laughs> about white fish and things like that. that are yeah, they're
2: all they're all trout. OK,
1: <laughs> no, actually, kind of that brings me to my next question when you mentioned the boniness. Um, and this is something I was I've been using your book for. Uh, is the difference in uh like filleting if you're going to fillet your fish um mm-hmm. i know they're all they can they vary widely in terms of the techniques based on mostly the boniness and how many you know where the bones are and how many there are it seems like uh is is there a good rule of thumb for grouping the fish in categories based on their bones like is it is it like a family level uh distinction cuz uh, i was actually we caught some mountain white fish the other day and I was um, surprised by some bones I found, and I looked in your book, and I was—you have a lot of different examples in there, but I was kind of like, I don't know which one to group this one with, and you know. So, is there a way that if someone catches a fish and it's not one of the ones specifically listed on how to flay in your book, is there a good way to know which fish to follow? Like, I guess just look for what it's most closely related to, or do they vary even down to the species at that point?
2: I would say you're talking, you, you go not 30,000 feet, but maybe 10,000 feet and okay. you'll be okay. So like all the carpy things, uh, whether it's a buffalo or a moon eye or, or actual carp, um, suckers, they all have ex- one extra set of bones. Um, whitefish have an extra set of bones. Uh, shad have two extra set of bones.
1: <laughs> this, sorry to cut you off. This might be a good question for you, though. Um, are mountain whitefish built very similarly to lake whitefish that you might catch up in the Great Lakes area?
2: Yes, they are. They're, okay. they're, they're
1: cousins. Okay. That's what I wasn't sure about because I, I frequently hear people talk about whitefish, um, yourself included in your book, but I'm never sure if, if you're talking about it, the same whitefish I am um, and whether it's applicable.
2: It doesn't really matter. I mean, they're basically the same fish. Okay. I mean, it's there are differences, but I mean, it's... Between Cisco's and chubs and mountain whitefish. And yeah, I mean, they're the only one that's like, holy shit, different is uh, she fish, which you catch up in northern Alaska. It's like a f- three to four foot whitefish. <laughs> it's like, God damn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I bet that pulls pretty hard on the line. Yeah,
2: especially because they get them through the ice.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I have, I think I've heard of this on a podcast um, recently, actually, about the shefish. And I hadn't heard of it before, but I remember looking it up and thinking, like, oh, yeah, it looks like a big whitefish.
2: Yep. It, in fact, it is a big fish.
1: <laughs> now, uh, do you, I know when I think of difficult to fly fish, pike come to mind. Um, are there mm-hmm. any fish that you would classify as like, maybe someone wants to go out and get started in keeping their own fish. Are there any recommendations of fish to avoid or to target based on kind of the ease of for the user of their first time out trying to deal with a fish? Like I assume a pike is not the first fish that someone wants to deal with um, if based on the the Y bones and everything like that. But I want to hear your opinion on, on that. Uh,
2: Everybody knows the answer to it because it's what everybody fishes for. And this, in your question, is the reason why everybody fishes for them because most anglers are not terribly skilled at knife work, um, despite what they might say. And, and so, consequently, you're talking about walleye.
1: I was about to say, is it walleye that
2: you're talking about? <laughs> it's walleye. You're talking <laughs> trout. Walleye and trout are the two easiest things to flay in the planet. Like salmon are very, very easy. Um, because they have weak bones, and and or or regular structure, so our mind like has this platonic ideal of what a fish should look like, and how a fillet should come off that fish, and it works with those fish. Um, bass are similar, but like so that's another set because they've got a big old they got a big old belly with strong ribs. So you either whack right through the ribs, which is what I do, because I don't care, because I just I don't buy I don't buy expensive fillet knives. Um, I just buy cheap filet knives and keep sharpening them and then buy another one for $20. Um, it's a commercial fishing thing. It's like, I, I see all these ads for like, look at this lovely filet knife. It's $117. I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like Dexter Russell all the way. Uh, and no, they're not paying me to say that. So, but yeah, so you got walleye, you got trout, you've got, you know, spotted bass or smallmouth bass. Those are all super easy to cut. Um, Believe it or not, catfish are easy to cut. People huh. forget that, um, and you don't have to skin a catfish. There's sorry I, there I said it. Like you don't have to skin a catfish. First of all, if you cook it with the skin on, there are certain dishes like um, mostly Asian dishes where the the slightly gelatinous uh, property of of cooked catfish skin is a good thing. Uh, but on a regular like a channel like an 18, 25 inch channel, you can just whack that fillet right off and then. Cut it just like a regular fish fillet. Like You can't. It, it works. Huh, I would have not to, have guessed that. It, it's. I don't, I don't understand why people are like, you need special catfish pliers, and you need to like nail the things head to a tree, and then <laughs> it has to be a, a full moon in October. And, and <laughs> it's just I, not that hard, guys.
1: <laughs> I guess I just wouldn't have guessed it because of their shape. They're kind of you know tube-shaped almost instead of more of a flatfish that I think people think of. When it's like fillet, like there's a side, there's a left side and there's a right side and you get a filet off both. Whereas when you think of a catfish, I almost think of like a top and a bottom more than a side and a side. Um, and You're I think not that's wrong, why I wouldn't have guessed that.
2: But what happens is when you take that filet off the, off the, the bone structure, it flattens out.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like rounded around the bones instead mm-hmm. of, okay, that makes sense. Um, I had a question about the bass that you mentioned where you kind of cut th- right through the ribs. Are you then uh, pulling those out of the filet before you cook it or are you cooking it with them in and just pulling them out as you eat? Uh, is there a, a right or wrong way to go about eating around the boat? There's isn't.
2: There's no right or wrong way. It's okay. whatever you f- want to. And in fact, a lot of time what I'll do is I'll just whack through the ribs, uh, just cause it's, well, okay. So case in point, uh, there's a fish called a Pacific rockfish that I deal with quite a lot and a personal limit is 10. So if I'm helping somebody out on a boat where there's 20 anglers and that's 200 fish, we've got to get through 200 fish like, and, and I'm not messing around. I'm just, I'm whacking through, I just. I'm not giving you any detail work on that, on that kind of day. So it's just like a whoosh, boom, done. And, and, and so in that case, what you do is, and you can then, you know, remove the side because it's not yet a filet because it still has bones in it, remove the side. And then you take your knife and just scoop underneath the ribs and just remove that whole bottom portion. So if you're doing it with your own fish at your house, there's no need to throw that away because that is a prime little tidbit for stock for fish stock. So that goes in the fish stock pot, which I normally make as I'm cleaning fish, like because I've got all of the, I've got all of the carcasses and I've got all the heads and I've got those little you know rib bits. It's a perfect time to make stock, and and then you've got you don't waste the fish. And if it's if it's a giant fish, um, that rib portion is its own thing,
1: like a rack of ribs. Yes. <laughs> I'll have to get to that point in your book when I ever catch something that's big enough to have its own rack of ribs. <laughs> um, I do want to come back to the fish stock. Um, that's something I want to talk about. But uh, just a quick tidbit on the fact that you mentioned that trout are one of the easy species to fillet. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because trout are. when I catch a trout, I tend not to even attempt to fillet it. I just basically cook it and pull the skeleton right out, and it comes out looking like a cartoon skeleton as long as Mm -hmm. you pull it with the grain. Uh, And it's made me wonder why people bother filleting trout at this point, because it's basically the whole skeleton is just surrounded by fillet, essentially, and you can just slide the skeleton right out and then just be left with a a trout that you could just eat.
2: (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong, but I mean, have you ever fished Pyramid Lake for 10, 20, 30 pound
1: cutthroats? I haven't, unfortunately. I'd like to, (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. You might not be able to, to pull that one out so easily and be left with just one massive trout to eat. But oh, um,
2: yeah. So I'll put, a, I'll, I'll, I'll go you one better on the opposite side. So I was up in the, in the Canadian Rockies fishing for cutthroats. And we actually got relatively skunked on that. But we went to an alpine lake with li- little teeny brook trout. And we caught a bunch of these little teeny things, like, I don't know, like eight, nine, 10 inches. And, it was for a TV show, so we needed a, something co- to cook. So I'm like, all right, we're doing it. So I actually filleted them. These little tiny things. We had little tidbits and bacon fat. And it was good. And then I uh, I cut the heads off so that the the skeletons would s- lay flat. And I packed them with a mixture of 50-50 salt and sugar. And I let that sit while we ate the other parts of the fish. Then I rinsed it off and then dusted it in flour and fry the crap out of it in the same bacon fat. It was so damn good. Because what happens is that the salt and the sugar and the hot oil softens all those bones. And so you could eat all, almost the entire skeleton.
1: And is that the recipe in your book called Crispy Fish Skeletons or something like that? It, is that the same? It is in
2: fact that recipe. Okay, <laughs> I,
1: I do have a question. Actually, maybe we can just do that before we come back to the stock. Um, I had a question on that. And it's basically how do you know if your skeleton is small enough for that to work. Cause you mentioned the bass and I think you even said in the book, don't use like a big thick skeleton for this. Um, mm-hmm. but how do you know when you've hit the point that you're going to bite into a bone and it's still going to be, you know, bony when you know, you just try it <laughs> you just try it and know. <laughs> like,
2: well, I mean, first of all, if your fish is bigger than 12 inches, you're probably not going to want to do this okay. unless it's, unless it's a, like a big mackerel or something. There's, there's certain classes of fish with softer bones, mackerel, sardines, um, snapper bluefish, um, um, trout, for example, they all have really, they all have really soft bones, but in general, you're not going to eat the whole skeleton anyway, because you know, you fried your thing and you're going to nibble from the outside in and your teeth will tell you when to stop.
1: Okay. So it's, it's more of just a test the waters and, and you'll figure it out if it's not going to work out for you. Right. Okay. Um, as for, uh, the fish stock, that's something I definitely want to touch on because I tried it for the first time a couple weeks ago. We kept we kept those white fish and um, we didn't make a ton of it because we didn't have a lot of fish. But I, was, I trusted that you said it wasn't going to be gross. Um, my boyfriend was not so trusting. He was like, I'm going to prepare a second dinner in case this is awful <laughs> because he just couldn't fathom the idea of, of fish stock. But uh, we were pleasantly surprised that it was extremely mild. It basically tasted like a mild chicken stock um mm-hmm. which is you know fantastic uh but do you get a lot of people that are really really skeptical on on the fish stock thinking it's going to be like drinking liquid fish smell i mean that's i think that's basically what we were kind of picturing
2: well you're not wrong because if you make a fish stock the way that you make a beef stock it's going to be vile
1: in like the cook the cooking length basically is that what you mean C- correct okay
2: yeah so a fish stock or a shellfish stock. You know, whether it's crawdads or, or lobsters or crabs or shrimp, none of these things are going to take never more than an hour and usually some closer to a half an hour. And you don't make a, a ton of it in the sense that you can make a pretty decent venison stock or beef stock by, um, by just putting what you've got in a pot and then covering it, you could cover it three, four, five inches deep in water. And you'll still have a decent stock. It won't be as good as it would be otherwise, but it, it'll still be good. You can't do that with fish stock because where you have with the land and you know, birds and mammals is you've got uh time on your side. So you can you get the the reduction in volume and increasing in flavors. You don't want to do that because with fish, you're gonna get that that time increases your stink factor. And I did it just for the hell of it. I I cooked a a striped bass stock once for ninety minutes and it was vile. I just threw it out, and it was gross. So if you stick to like a half hour, um, forty-five minutes, you're good.
1: Do you know why that is? Like, what about fish uh, does not work the same way as some of these land animals? That uh, like, I don't know if there's a time you can overdo venison stock or beef stock. You you can maybe answer that. Like, if you've got three days to just let it go and start with a lot of water, like, is there a point where you it can't get any better or would get actually bad or yeah
2: um it, it's the same process that happens with fish much more rapidly okay. it's the you start to get calcium extraction into the into the broth which is why that when people call it bone broth and they know what the hell they're talking about that's what they want they boil the crap out of this stuff so they want that calcium extraction it is scientifically arguable and i believe it's I don't know. All I know is that it is it is debated whether that calcium is biologically available to you when you when you eat that um, that bone broth. But a real bone broth is different from a stock in the sense that it's boiled, not simmered, and it's boiled for a long, long time. And so it's it's cloudy. It's it's almost milky looking, and it's chalky. To me, it, I mean, it's good only for health food, and I don't. It's questionable even at that. Where and so that will happen with fish within ninety minutes.
1: I see. Okay, so that actually wasn't something I was gonna ask, but that answers a question I've kind of wondered in that I've heard people select people talk about how bone broth is not good. It's just they're they're trying to get health benefits from it. But then I've heard other people refer to what I would consider like a normal stock as bone broth. Like there's some maybe uh like collagen, I think, congealing on the top, uh, but it's tasty. Like you would You'd throw a little bit of salt in there, and you could sip on it as a drink, um, or like people eat drink broth when they're sick. Uh, I mean,
2: that's the entire point of broth or stock is like is a to add stock, a to add salt, and b to actually drink it.
1: Right. <laughs> so, so I've I've wondered what that disconnect is when people are like, oh, I you know bone broth is disgusting, but I I get through it, and I'm like, really? Because when I make a like a pot of stock, which I've also heard people call bone broth, but it's obviously not correct, I'm like, mm-hmm. I pull a little espresso cup out of that every couple hours and just sip on it because it's good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's interesting to hear. So it's basically the fish, it's going through the same process, it's just happening way faster. Yes. Okay. Moving on from the stock, we actually, uh, well, I guess not moving on from the stock, in a continuation of the stock, we made uh, the salmon head soup that you had in there um, with those white fish and it was fantastic. Uh, I thought that was kind of a fun thing to try because of the substitution and I kind of like that focus in your books and in that things aren't made for certain species, they're made for certain uh, characteristics. And, you know, you can throw different things in as needed. So we did that salmon head stock with our white fish and it turned out great. Um, And do you find that that there's like specific groups, is it like oily versus not oily, that's the biggest divide? Um, Or is it something else that causes fish to kind of be grouped together, Uh, like maybe white flesh versus like the darker pink flesh? Is is there a, is there one divide that you would consider to be the like grand divide between fish, apart from f- fresh versus salt?
2: I, I think the grand divide is fatty versus not fat. Okay. Um, but there's also also I mean in my book I'm, I talk about white fish, gray fish, uh, and orange fish. Um, and so the color is a difference, but color is also a marker for fat. There there are no uber lean orange fish. You sure, pink salmon are are a lot leaner than than say kings, but they're still fatter. They're still fattier than cod. Um, and and pr- pretty much all of the gray fish are pretty are fatty as well. And I'm talking like tuna, bluefish, jacks, mackerel. There aren't any so-called gray freshwater fish. Uh, the closest would be like a gizzard shad, but nobody really eats those. Um, so yeah, I think th- the biggest divide is that, and the second biggest divide would be uh, texture. What's firm and what's not. Because there are some fish that are just not firm, no matter what you do.
1: And by not firm, is that something that people would colloquially call mushy? Indeed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually gonna be what I asked you next is like, uh what fish do you associate as being mushy? And how do you get around that? Is that just in the in the cooking techniques that you like mentioned in the book? It's kind it's kicking that into account when it, you know. Oh yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, I mean both in Ocean perch, you know, surf perch, the Pacific surf perch species, those are all incredibly mushy. Bofin is any regular fish caught in hot water.
1: Oh, so if okay. you catch
2: crappies or or bass and you keep them in and the water's hot, you know, like it's a farm pond in summer. I'm like, oh look at this huge crappie, it's awesome. And it's like July. Yeah, you just make fish cakes.
1: Because okay.
2: Fish cakes cure a multitude of ills. Um if you know your fish is going to be kind of yeah, yeah, like wallpaper paste, just make fish cakes anyway. It'll be fine.
1: Okay. Now, if you catch a mushy fish, do you uh, have a different way of cleaning it? Because I feel like filleting at that point, it's not really necessary if you're not trying to get beautiful fillets. Like at that point, could you essentially just pull the meat and globs off the bones if you're just going to make fish cakes out of them? Or is there a, a proper way? Well,
2: there There's no fish that's that fish. that, that Well, the bowfin is. Other than the bowfin... There's no fish that's that mushy. <laughs> it's usually you determine it when, after it's cooked.
1: Oh, see, I feel like I've had fish where the, I would describe the the pre-cooked meat as a little bit mushy or you could you could at least pull it off the bone if you tried. Like it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily all stay in one piece. Maybe I'm just catching bad fish in some
2: hot water, man.
1: <laughs> no, I mean I like the, even the white fish we caught the other day, um I felt like you know, they, they held together fine to cook, but I was able to pretty easily uh, scrape those bones of meat and it was just coming off in kind of globs. That so we just, we just kind of fried, you know, it was tasty. Oh, but-
2: the spoon meat. Yeah. 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 But I mean, that's uh, that's not criminal in the sense that, like, you still enjoy that whitefish. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And so salmon are the same way and trout are the same way. What I'm talking about is like, is like that that crappie or that bass instance where it looks fine, you flate it off, and it looks perfectly normal, and you cook it, and it's like wallpaper paste.
1: Okay, yeah, maybe we just have different definitions of mushy here, and maybe I just haven't mm-hmm. experienced the level of mush that you're talking about.
2: That's pretty epic mush. I mean, there's soft fish, you know, like um, yeah, I mean, surf perch are really soft. Um, all of the salmonids are soft. Um, like you could like you with your fingers, you can completely screw up a a trout or a salmon filet if you're too rough with it.
1: Yeah. Okay. I guess that's mostly what I'm referring to because I guess a lot of the fish that I do keep are trout. So I'm often comparing a trout to a trout. And so sometimes I get trout that are beautiful, firm, flaky filets. And then other times I feel like I'm eating a pile of fish and I definitely wouldn't (laughs) describe it as wallpaper paste, but it's basically a pile of fish sitting on my plate that I'm just kind of picking up pieces of it on my fork and it's not it's not a bite it's a glob of fish um but it's not it's not undesirable uh it's not it's nothing that would deter people i feel like for the most part unless they were really expecting a flaky white walleye filet and this is what they got instead um have you noticed the difference between wild and stocked fish
2: oh 100 in 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 what ways uh stocked fish are Gross. I mean, well, I mean, like, is it
1: texture and taste and color? Is it like, is it all the above? Yes, all of those. Okay.
2: All of the above. I mean, they're paler, they're softer, um, they're blander. Like, if you catch a nice holdover rainbow, one that's been hanging out in the body of water that you're fishing for three years, that fish is going to be awesome. It's going to be bright orange. It's going to stay orange when you cook it. Uh, And it's going to be much firmer and it's going to have more actual flavor. And if the next fish you caught was a stalker, bleh.
1: so you mentioned that, um, some of those orangey fish are often the oilier ones. Um, mm-hmm. does that mean that the stocked fish are less oily or is there something else that's causing that, uh, lack of color? Cause I've, I've seen that in have tr- seen caught trout that are kind of a dark pinkish orange. And I've caught other trout that are uh, almost translucent white, uh, but is that, a, is that an oil content? Or if it's in the same species, is that is that something else? Like they've got the same oil content, but there's there's something else contributing to that color.
2: It's oil content and it's diet. So a good example are the cutthroats of Pyramid Lake that we mentioned. They're fish eaters. So they're not as orange as a brook trout when a brook trout virtually exclusively eats uh, shrimpy things, you know, bugs and little crustacean-y things. So they're the most orange of all of the the native trout um, in terms of like their, their, their flesh color. Interesting. So diet has a huge thing to do with it. And then um, the thing about the stalkers is they're fed, they're effectively fed Berkeley power bait more or less. And, and so, yeah, it's plenty oily, but it's mealy. And it's, it's just, it's, it is reflected in the flesh of that, of that fish.
1: Okay. But a fish that and holds over can uh, take on those attributes of a wild fish just through, being in the water for a while and starting to switch to more of a, a real diet than those mm-hmm. fish pellets?
2: They need to be a fish for a while.
1: Okay. It, do you happen to know if there's kind of a time limit? Like if it's a holdover for a year, is it, is it going to be very similar to a wild fish by that point?
2: I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, so there are, I've seen a couple studies where they look at the retention rates and I mean, a lot, in some of these bodies of water, there's, it's a rare fish that lives, you know, that gets stalked and then lives for four years. But one winter holdover will will do them right.
1: That's good to know. I mean, I don't know around here at least what what percentage of stalkers actually make it. Um, I feel like it's often obvious when you catch a stalker, um, but you might not know exactly when it was stocked. Uh, and a lot of the fisheries are either like you know going in if you're catching mostly stocked fish or mostly wild fish. Um, mm-hmm. But I suppose in that, at that point you just have to use kind of context clues to figure out if maybe you did catch a holdover in one of those stocked fisheries, just based on does it look like trash when you pull it out? of Yeah, home? or
2: if it's like one of those weird ass triploid mongoloid, <laughs> you know, like
1: Roar, yeah. you
2: know, like with a big crazy hump on it, like oh god, it's like what did they do to that trout?
1: Yeah, it looks like they took, <laughs> like, took a, like a trash compactor to both ends and just like pressed <laughs> it. it. was just it triploids. looks triploids. Like triploids are called. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't actually know if we have. I mean, I don't know like what Colorado's trip lo- program is like if they've got one at all. I've heard about it in some other states, but as like I'm I'm not aware of it happening near me at least, and haven't caught any fish that looks that deformed. <laughs> at least <laughs> I've just seen pictures of I, them. I've never caught. Yeah. Them. Um. Well, just to kind of get wrapping up here, are there? I just kind of wanted a, an overview. Are there any like misconceptions or uh, mistakes that people make that would just be kind of a good overview to leave people with if you if you had to know like three or four things of just don't buy into the hype on this or don't feel discouraged because of this like do you have any words of wisdom to kind of make people feel more comfortable keeping their fish and preparing them to something delicious
2: yeah i mean ice is your friend it's number one um you know so your the quality of whatever fish that you catch is going to be better if it's iced on the boat or on the shore um that's Period. End of story. Full stop. Um, in the kitchen, keep in mind that um, the the key to not having fish stick, which is a big thing that that people come up against, is the fish needs to be as dry as possible. It's not possible to dry a fish too much. You know, so your fish needs to be dry. Your cooking surface needs to be ragingly hot. This is another thing that, that home cooks are often um, fearful at high heat cooking. And this is a bad thing if you're going to cook, say, a trout with a skin on or even a trout with the skin off. So the, the pan needs to be hot and then the oil has to be hot or your grill grates have to be clean. So a hot grill grate and a piece of fish is a beautiful thing until and unless it has gook on it. And then that's going to... That's going to to adhere that fish to the grill grates. So your grates need to be super clean. It helps to oil them. It absolutely helps to oil the fish if you're grilling it. Okay. And so if you're going to pan sear something, the pan has to be ripping hot. You have to put a very high smoke point oil in, like canola or safflower or grapeseed or rice bran, um, and get that hot. Get that almost to smoking which is super, super hot. It's like 400 plus degrees. And then, and then you put your piece of fish down into this raging hot pan with raging hot oil. And the second it hits, jiggle the pan, fish goes down. And so you'll see that, that fish slide on the, on the oil. Now you can put your next piece of fish down. And so like you fill the pan, they can't touch because otherwise you can steam themselves. And then, all right, you're good. 're you're, you're, they're there. Turn the heat down so it sounds like it's cooking bacon. I like to call it a jocular sizzle. and and then just now if it's on the grill, it should also sound like you know a nice sizzle. Go have a beer. like leave it alone <laughs> like, like don't keep picking at it. So in both cases, you either want to flip the fish once or never. So if it's a thin fillet, you want to take, you want to tip that pan and and use a spoon to baste raging hot oil over the top of the fish, and once it turns opaque and the bottom of that piece of fish is gets nice and crispy, which you'll see, you're done, and then of course you let it rest for a couple minutes, um, crispy side up. So, the how do you know when you're done? Well, first you're going to see around the edge of the fish, it's going to turn caramelized and pretty. Second, you're going to jiggle the pan again. If they move, you're done. And third thing is if it's, if it wants to move, but there's like one stuck spot, that's when you use your, your spatula to like kind of dig underneath it. You have to have the courage of your convictions. Otherwise you're going to leave that piece of fish skin in the pan. And then you go, you know, it's like, like it's like a, it's like snapping a twig and then you'll flip it over and you jiggle a pan again because you, you know, that side hasn't been cooked and you repeat it and then you're good. Like that's, that's the Zen of fish cookery. You don't pick at it don't be afraid of high heat um, and and, and the, if you're going to flip the fish flip it only once and I mean you've seen the pictures like it's not hard you know I mean you just have to do it okay maybe it is hard but I mean <laughs> <laughs> like the, the joke is that the first thousand are hard um, but you get a you, it's just like cooking a duck breast. I mean once you do it enough you can do it in your sleep you can do it on a campfire you can do it anywhere because you get you pick up these cues of what does it look like? What does the sizzle sound like? Um, is the fish arcing up? Like a big thing that happens is, let's say you had um, a bass filet with a skin on it or a walleye filet with a skin on it or any fish with a skin on it. And you put it in that hot pan, it's going to arc. So a really good idea is to either get a bacon press or another pan or something to s- and just put it on that piece of fish to flatten it sucker out. And it doesn't need to be on the whole time, maybe 60 seconds. And then it'll relax and you'll be good to go. Okay. So there's just little tricks and tips that really will up your game.
1: Yeah, I think uh, this is definitely something that I've done because I've just been worried about either burning it or overcooking it to the point of it being, I don't even know what I'm scared of, I guess, leathery. Um, is is that what happens if you go too far? Does the fish I just mean, get dry and mean, level? You have
2: to really kick the crap out of it to okay. get leathery fish <laughs> i just feel like it's
1: overcooked fish is just like kind of a big fear of mine um it like i i feel like a lot of the venison cuts i put down in the pan are not are, are so thick that i'm not that concerned about overdoing it because i'm like the, the middle is going to be medium rare at the most by the time i'm done with it mm-hmm. um but i feel like fish just because there's not that very obvious like red to brown it's still all kind of that you know whitish or if it's a pink fish like it's it it's still kind of the same color when it's done. It might go from a little bit more translucent to a little bit more opaque, but we're still talking white to white. Um, I'm always just a little bit more fearful. Like, I don't want to have it be raw in the middle for freshwater fish, and I don't want it to be overcooked either. Um, and it's just, I guess I've just been scared of not knowing when is that sweet spot, because there's not those indicators like there are for, like, red meat.
2: There are. You just, they're just different indicators. Okay, maybe I'm I mean, just not sure what to look for. So, the caramelization <laughs> on the underneath is is one. Um, so... Give me, give me a, a good, for instance, like what is the most common way that you're going to come home and cook a piece of fish, and I'll and walk you through it.
1: Oh well, I guess normally I'm cooking trout whole. I'd, okay. I, I would just, I mean, d- d- various ways, but like I'll, well, like
2: pan-sized I'll, trout whole. Yeah. All right. So you got, you got your trout. They're gutted. They have no gills. Do they have their heads on?
1: Uh, yes or no.
2: Keep the heads on if you can. Keep the heads on because if you don't, if you take the head off. That biggest, thickest portion of that filet, which is the shoulders, um, is going to get exposed to too much heat and it'll be overcooked. Um, I mean, obviously, if you got to cut the head off to fit in the pan, then fine. But but if you can, keep the heads on. So um, clean the fish, no gills, pat them dry. I don't really scale trout like that uh, because the scales are so small. Who cares? Um, So pat them dry, get your pan hot, oil your trout. And oil your trout, pan's pretty hot, put, I don't know, two, three tablespoons of that high smoke point oil in. swirl it around. It's going to shimmer immediately and then give them, you know, 30 seconds or so to get hot and put a, put a trout down, jiggle, jiggle. All right. He's moving. Put another one down, put another one down. You'll probably get three, uh, maybe two depending on the size and then make sure that they're all kind of slicked up and good and and you've salted them beforehand that's another piece i forgot um salt them beforehand then pat them dry right before they go in the pan and so all right they're sizzling turn the heat down to like medium medium high so they sounds like bacon and then just sit there and look at them for a couple minutes and then then you're going to want to think about tipping that pan and just spooning oil over all the fish on the other side and you do this not because you're not going to flip it but because it kind of gets it along a little bit and it's, it, it tightens that skin and it makes it less sticky when you flip it. So you, you look at the bottoms of all of those trout that you've got in the pan and you're like, oh, they look kind of nice and pretty and browned and, and delicious. Try to flip them. And, you know, if you don't have a fish spatula, buy one. You need a fish spatula. The reason why is because they're very, very, very thin. They have a kind of a blade on the front of them and they're incredibly flexible. And so you you stick your fish spatula under trout one. Does it come up easy? Yes. Flip it. And do and repeat as necessary. Does it is it stuck in the pan? Turn the heat down a little bit and just keep it going. It will release. You have to be patient. Huh, okay. And 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 then then ultimately it will release enough, at least three quarters to eight tenths of the way. And so then you can use that, that blade on the front of this fish fish spatula to kind of like dig that one or two spots where it's sticking and then flip it. And it's going to look great. You're going to be, you're going to be amazed. And then just repeat the th- same thing on the other side.
1: Okay. And then uh, would you still let that rest afterward?
2: I would. I mean, it can I mean, it's not like a steak where you use like 10 minutes, but you know, a couple, two, three minutes. Okay.
1: And then for just in, for your preference, if you have a trout like this, are you just basically uh, picking your way at it with a fork until you've got a bare skeleton left over?
2: Yeah, typically, yeah, unless I've got you know fancy people,
1: right? <laughs> and then that that <laughs> skeleton from a kind of a pan-sized trout is that a good material for fried fish skeletons?
2: Indeed, it okay. is.
1: So at that point, you can be eating basically the whole thing except the skull. I would assume is the last yep. the last bit. Yeah,
2: I I uh, I don't use those skulls because they, they mess up the frying of the of the skeleton. Okay, I mean, I guess if you deep fried it, it would work.
1: Okay, so it, do you you don't have really any use for that? That's going in the garden, buried or something like that.
2: Yeah, or, you know, stock or something like that.
1: Okay, great. Well, um, I think I've mostly covered everything I need. It sounds like I've, I'm qualified now to go catch my, catch my trout and uh, cook them a lot better. Um, do you just want to plug where people can find you? I know you have uh, your new book out. You mentioned it a couple times, but um, just go ahead and plug it again, your website, sure. wherever people can find you.
2: So the core of what I do is my website, and that is Hunter Angler Gardner Cook. Um, the easiest way to get to it is huntgathercook.com. And, uh, that is also kind of my handle on Facebook and Instagram. I'm very active on Instagram at, uh, at hunt gather And, uh, I've got five cookbooks and they're, they're available wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> you can buy them directly from me. Uh, and if you do buy them directly from me on my website, they will be signed. So that's kind of cool. Um, but I can't beat Amazon for shipping because nobody can. And so if you want it fast, get it on Amazon or wherever else you, you care to get books. Um, but really probably the best way to, to get in touch with me and to to interact is Instagram. I run a Facebook group called hunt, gather cook, and it's a private, private group with 24,000 members in it. And I vet everybody who comes in. So you have to answer questions to get in. If you don't answer questions, you don't get in. Um and and tell tell me that you heard me on this podcast analogy and I'll let you in. So it's a great it's a great forum and it's got everything from like Prius driving vegan Earth mothers to like <laughs> MAGA hat wearing dually guys and and we keep the peace because there are no politics involved. I police it very sternly and it's all about the food. And so it's it's a place where it's basically the Borg for wild. Food. <laughs> Resistance is futile.
1: <laughs> well, I feel like food has probably been bringing people together for uh, a lot longer than Facebook, but um, it sounds like it might be the, the last stronghold of friendly interactions on Facebook, too. <laughs>
2: we really try.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Hank. I, I appreciate you taking the time for this and um, just all your tips. There's, I feel like this is such a daunting world for so many people, and I think you make it accessible to the average angler um, to make people feel a little bit more confident in preparing what they've caught. So I appreciate it.
2: I appreciate you having me on.
1: All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, Don't forget to head over to the website, fishuntamed.com, for all episodes and show notes. And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody.